I'm Naked and Broke. Welcome back. I'm your host, Emmanuel Wisdom. Today, I have a very uh, special guest, um, one I've been excited for. Uh, she's a writer, activist, founder, and CEO of the Black Curriculum in the UK. Uh, welcome to the show, Lavinia. Thank you for having me, Emmanuel. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm good, blessed, and just excited. <laughs> um, before we get into all the good that you're doing with uh, the Black Curriculum, I try to keep up every now and then. I peek on the site. Um, I want to check in with you and uh, ask you, um, what are you most grateful for today? I think I'm most grateful for having the ability to reflect, like the men mental faculty still being able to um, not only think forward, but also reflect on, you know, the past. Um, I think it's a privilege to, to be alive. So <laughs> um, yeah, I'm grateful for my mind and the ability to reflect, yeah. Yeah, that, that, that is such a, a great answer. Um, I feel like a lot of uh, gratitude comes out of reflection um, when you're able to, you know, just take a moment and just just understand your own journey and things like that and you know how other things kind of came into play um mm. a few a few days ago i believe two days ago someone in the lettering community um african-american based in chicago i believe uh passed away due to a motorcycle accident oh, no. um his name is adeo and he was such a great lettering artist and it kind of put me in a similar mindset of just, um, you know, reflecting um, on things. And um, for some reason, felt kind of close to just being um, in the design and lettering industry. Uh, but uh, similar to what you were saying, it kind of put me in the mood of just um, thinking about, you know, the, the first time I looked up um, to actually pay attention to dates was in uh, October. And I was like, wow, how did we even get here from January? Right. Um, so that put me in the sense of um, just get put me in the sense of gratitude and, you know, just being grateful to be here and, you know, another day under the sun and another day mm -hmm. trying to connect. Mm -hmm. 100%. That's beautiful. <laughs> uh, do you consider yourself a creative person? Creative? Yeah. Yeah, 100%. Why is that? Um, because creativity, it's, um, I think it's just a natural state of being like, mm. I, I think sometimes the descriptor is like, oh, I think of myself as creative or I can do something that's creative. But I think by virtue of just being, um, we are creative people. So, you know, I definitely see that through my, my writing, um, the language that I use is creative. Some people would say it's a bit weird, <laughs> but I, I, yeah, I, I enjoy being creative. Mm. Yeah, hundred. Yeah, that's uh, that's a good answer. I think, uh, in my opinion, I think everyone is is um, like you say, creative, a creative being. I also believe that as well, and I think um, with time and and you know society and and the conditionings and programming that people kind of you know forget that um, that we are all you know creative beings. Um, we could dive more into your creativity and your writing. Um, I want to ask, how long have you been? How long have you been writing? Um, all right. So the earliest picture of me writing was probably when I was four, four wow. or five. Um, yeah, in school, I was always kind of just 
I remember English classes were my favorite. Um, so yeah, I remember like doing like very early like writing competitions and yeah, in class, <laughs> just head down sort of thing. So yeah. So, wow, so. that's amazing. Um, math and English, I think were my least favorite. I know least math favorite. and Stefanelli, my least favorite <laughs> class. But I, I love history. History was my favorite classes. Oh, wow. I love learning about cultures and um, how people lived uh, centuries ago and, and, you know, being able to spot the similarities in, in how I was living in present oh. time. Um, yeah. But um, do you remember the first uh, story you wrote or, you know, what it was about? Um, not the first story, but I remember one of my first projects. Mm. Um, it was like I had to write about... Um, like a holiday that I've been on so almost like a diary entry um and I kind of remember kind of alternating some of the facts um in there to make it sound a lot more interesting um you know we'd call that creative writing these days <laughs> <laughs> so yeah I remember that being like something that I was really proud of and um yeah like an early task that I was certain mm. I still have it as well what um, I want to talk about, like the state of state of mind you're in when you're writing. Um, I know for me as a as a designer and a creative, um, like I, I tap into a lot of different things, like experiences, um, emotions, or you know, music or, or things like that. I try to pull from those different things. Um, but when I sit down to to write, usually I try to create uh, like environment, like mood. Um, most, most of the time I'm working when it comes to drawing, I'm drawing either early in the morning um, or late at night when there's barely anyone out or any noise. Um, so I want you to speak a little bit about your writing process. And, um, mm. How are you trying to put yourself in the mood to get into it? Mm. Very, very good question. I feel like with my writing, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get into the practice of it because I think with any kind of mastery of something you've got to be able to practice and habitually do it um and so even when I don't feel like doing it I will do it uh, and it doesn't look like candles and um, like music in the background a lot of my writing is very kind of intuitive and I would describe that as like whatever I feel I'm gonna write it and it sometimes just flows over like pages and pages and pages because I have something to, so passionate to write about or I'm feeling in a type of way and I just want to get it out on a piece of paper so it doesn't look very nice it's not tidy but it's emotive and it's very strong and I feel like those are the best types of writing because it's just like it's just the process of letting it out mm. and then there are times where you know on the opposite side I have like a very kind of hyper focus it's very kind of like mechanistic so I, you know perhaps I'm writing like an essay I, I have to be able to kind of methodically break that down into like sections um right. and then you know really think about what my point is and it's almost like you're weave not just weaving something together but you're adding up you're totaling things to, to create this this larger picture so it's a lot more I'd say like process driven than the other process that I just described and then somewhere in the middle is yeah candles and music <laughs> <laughs> and then there is that that process of just being able to write very neatly and like be honest and um yeah I think your environment sometimes is conducive to what actually the outcome is and then sometimes when you look you're like 
I've really just spent an hour writing all of that amazing and you feel really good wow. and lifted after. So, yeah. Wow. Um, writing is something, um, like I told you earlier, um, wasn't necessarily my strong suit, but something I've, I admire from afar. It's, it's kind of ironic that I, I kind of do lettering. That's kind of close to writing, but it's not really writing. Um, mm -hmm. But in terms of um, writing, I always find myself kind of getting caught up um, in, like you were saying, that initial kind of dump of like the information on ideas and going back to draft it. Um, I always find myself getting caught up in that first step of, you know, getting out the ideas. Um, I try to refine them as much as possible before even, you know, getting the first draft done, which I, I think is not a good approach at all because um, I'm always stuck in my head. Um, and I think there might be a few other people out there that are kind of like me. What would you recommend in terms of um, just, I guess, breaking out of that shell and, mm -hmm. um, and just getting out the idea and, and like you were saying, kind of going back and piecing it back together? Mm. Um, well, I'll kind of draw this back to an example that I think we'll talk more about, which is the Black curriculum. Mm. I remember feeling that I needed to do something. I needed to write, not the right, but I needed to have this idea kind of mapped out. And the first thing I'd done at the time was talk to my friend. Like, I remember calling them on FaceTime. I was like, there's this idea that I have. And they just literally talked, like, repeated what I was saying back. And it helped me to kind of just see what I was thinking. And I think sometimes, like, you know, as creators, there's so many ideas and you can get really lost in your head. And yeah, there's like a block before you're able to really kind of have that process of getting it down. And so I find that talking really helps with me because it kind of, brings out into reality for you to see it make sense of it okay that doesn't make sense and then another idea that you have might connect to what makes sense so it's like talking it out and verbalizing it has a really profound effect for me anyway so yeah that that's one thing and maybe writing you know but not in your typical way maybe doing mind maps and little spider diagrams they're the ones they taught us in school the ones that they really shoved down our faces sometimes they're useful <laughs> yeah you know? I, I am uh i am also decided to talk to you about definitely education and your perspective as well um uh because i like you're kind of hinted at i felt like um, a lot of ed education i got um was felt like it was force force fed in, in a sense um uh but before we get into that um talk to me a little bit about uh the black curriculum and you know when it started and how that came about yeah okay so the black curriculum it's uh organization um at the heart of what we're doing it is um really about empowering all students with a sense of identity and belonging through the teaching of black history. Um, so I started it three years ago, last month, so October, 2019, the idea came to me and it was really about um, kind of on a national level, making sure that there was an institution, if you like, or a national project that really oversaw how that teaching looked like and that there was a kind of broader framework to ensure the mandatory teaching of it because it was not mandatory and it's still not mandatory in England. It is now in Wales. Um, but that means that sometimes, or a lot of the time, young people go through education learning about one type of black history, namely slavery, um, like once a year in October, which is Black History Month in the UK. So I wanted something that could just 
change that. And so I set up the organization um, in 20, so I said three years ago, I'm gonna correct myself, so that's 2018, October 2018. And then in 2019, we became an organization. Mm. Um, and yeah, so we train teachers. We also um, encourage you know, schools to kind of rethink their curriculums. So we provide a range of services with schools. And we also directly teach students, which is why we started. It's, you know, kind of circumnavigating the system, getting that information to students who need it. Mm. I, I thought it was very powerful um, just even hearing about the Black curriculum. Um, but with the, the idea, um, were you like still in school or post-school post when that idea came to you? The idea came to me when I was still in um, my last year of university. So I just finished um, a semester in New Zealand as part of my second year. Mm. And then I came straight into third year and then the idea was, it was already there. So I had to balance that as well as studying. And then once I graduated, I went straight into the Black curriculum full time. That's, that's amazing. Um, very similar to, um, we were talking a little bit about, you know, my studio in Philly, I'm very similar to kind of my approach to it. Um, mm. I think the idea junior year most likely um, came to me and I, I remember writing down names and, and focusing on websites and things like that. Um, mm -hmm. And then I started just to write down ideas of um, like things I wanted to do, people I want to work with, uh, what kind of design and things like that. Um, mm. And by the time I graduated, uh, which was maybe a year, um, a year and some months after that. Um, I had a few jobs um, offered that was on the table. I turned them all down. I uh, went out to Cali um, and realized Cali was expensive. Came back to Philly and, um, and I started the studio. Um, Amazing. I want to say six months after graduation. Um, and uh, yeah, and, but before that, I think you and I had connected and around the same time, and I have to say, I'm always in awe of what you are able and is able and still continue to do with um, the Black curriculum, because uh, it's such a powerful, um, powerful thing. Um, just, you know, the little, the little, you know, um, slight misdirection or, you know, redirection of people um, in the end to, you know, um, serve a greater purpose. Um, I think of it as like golfing. Um, you know, the slightest angle could um, have that ball land, you know, yards and yards away from where it was supposed to. And so I always think of it as, you know, like, you know, uh, a, the smallest seed or, you know, you, you know, turn into a, a forest somehow. Um, right. If, you know, if it's cared for. So I've always appreciated that. And when I started working on the studio um, and again, thinking of kind of the brain of um, what to center the studio around and thinking about like core values and things um, was around the same time I worked with you. And then another friend of mine who was in Scranton um, started a, an organization um, called Black Scranton, um, which is uh, an, a nonprofit focused on um, just unearthing the history of um, the Black people that was in Scranton, that built yeah. Scranton and and a lot of that history was uh, buried for years and years, and, and um, she and I connected. And it was very similar to what you was doing in the UK, and, and somehow I was in the middle of it. 
and that really kind of shaped the mind of my brand kind of turned it into it made it a bit more conscious i would say and i was thinking like post uh black curriculum and uh post uh black scranton i was definitely thinking about more of the afterlife uh afterlife and uh the impact of my work um and what i was putting into the world um as far as you know being on a professional stage um and so i've always appreciated um the fact that you know our connection uh, came about I'm not sure how it came about but definitely appreciated how it came about and it was very um felt honored and grateful to have worked with you um with uh designing the visual look for the black curriculum well yeah it's, it's uh, mutually um valued as well the connection and i think what you just mapped out there is the journey and you meet people at the right time and you know the people that you don't meet, the rejections that you face is just a redirection to where you're supposed to get to. Yeah. So, yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, I want to um, thank you for being courageous in your um, journey um, as well. And, you know, trusting the universe who's going to connect those dots because um, that was what I was doing on mine as well. And like you said, it's great to kind of reflect and see um, how those pieces came together. Um, yeah. Someone I think you probably is familiar with that I recently became familiar with, um, I believe last January, um, was uh, Queen Nanny of the Maroons. Um, I worked on a project uh, with a a studio I was in during a pandemic um, for a a movie production company uh, called Yard Girl. Um, Mm -hmm. And uh, the founder, Diane Robinson, uh, a great, great, great lady. Um, she and I was chatting and the brand Yard Girl came about because of um, the, um, the, I guess the, that was kind of like the, the name that was called to um, the females that was working, um, call them Yard Girl, something like that. So she wanted to put a spin on that. And she told me about the story of uh, Queen of the Maroons and her uh, participation and um, her, her fight for the liberation of uh, the people of Jamaica. And it was so um, like powerful, um, just um, just kind of carrying that story um, that I felt like, you know, like you're saying with history and education that, um, that I felt like that should have been something that was, should have been given to me a lot um, earlier when I was younger, as far as, you know, coming up in the tiers of uh, education. Um, mm-hmm. But you probably know a lot more about her than I do. So um, could you speak a little bit on what she means to you? Um, so for those that don't know, Nanny, um, well, yeah, informally known as Nanny, Nanny of the Maroons, um, is, was a Jamaican freedom fighter, leader of um, one of the Maroon communities, um, which is a, a term or a name used to describe communities um, who um, created their own communities outside of the institution um, of slavery, of enslavement, and so often they would find themselves find uh, you know environments in the hills and um, would kind of defend themselves away from European powers. So Nanny was a leader, and um, I think to me, not only is she like a national hero, um, international hero. I think she she's definitely like someone who um, 
possessed an understanding of what was like right and and followed her conviction um, to be able to you know inspire other people to follow suit but also um, for herself um, you know lead with integrity which I think is important for any leader as well like knowing knowing what you stand for and your values not taking that from anyone as well is really key so um, I was about to cast on and I don't want to cast but yeah um, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you're emotionally driven let it out <laughs> so, yeah nanny i think to me just symbolizes like hope and and yeah. it sounds very like airy fairy but it's definitely hope in the sense that if you believe in something it can yeah. absolutely get done absolutely yeah absolutely and um i think also she was such a powerful figure for me and the timing of how i came to knowing about her was um I think shortly after, um, actually, it was right before the um, the killing of um, George Floyd in America, and mm-hmm. and that was so tragic and disheartening um, that you know it was even like hard to like function, and and through that project, just like you know learning about her and, and just like you were saying, all the things she had to overcome. And most importantly, um, being a female in, in that time um, and, and standing up for not just herself, but the people and what was right um, and fighting for longevity. Um, and I thought that was very, very powerful. And that kind of um, gave me a lot of hope for the future. Um, and also um, it told me that, you know, like, uh, like, the, you know, the fight is a global thing. It's not a... Um, I feel like a lot of like prop, uh, media um, try to like section it out as far as, you know, you from Jamaica, um, mm-hmm. Haiti or America or Africa, um, try to make it seem like it's, you know, like different problems. But um, I believe it's, you know, one problem that um, globally um, people of all African descent has to recognize and, and tap into. Um, on a global scale. Um, so just learning about the, the story of uh, Queen of Maroon that helped me um, on a global sense to um, just kind of um, take a step back and again, just reflect and, 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 um, and not have an irrational uh, reaction to what was happening, um, but put um, logical uh, steps, um, actionable steps in play that I could, you know, not just for myself, but, you know, the people that was around me as well. Um, but you mentioned October Black History Month, uh, which was last month in the UK. Um, our Black History Month is, uh, I think, February, I believe. Um, I, I celebrate Black History every day, so it, it doesn't mean much to me. Um, but it, it is a you know a liberating a month for some people. Um, so as a whole, definitely. Um, it's, it's nice to celebrate, if not at least recognize. Um, but I was doing some digging and um, I saw your uh, post from 2018 for, uh, I believe, Huff, Huff Post. Um, yeah. And the title was uh, Why I Wouldn't Be Celebrating Black History Month in Its Current Form and Why You Shouldn't Either. Um, I thought that was a powerful uh, uh, blog post. Um, I read it and I agree with. Uh, the structure of what you were saying and 
um, at the core of what you were saying. I agree with that as well. I pull a quote from there that I'd like for you to expand on that I'm going to share. Um, you said, uh, when Black Britons grow up le learning a version of that history that is depicted as passive, uneducated, and a violent monolith, all under a month deemed to be empowering. The message that it relay is an attack on one ontological density, spelling out a reality of being at the bottom of society. It silences current Black British voices and fades out the work of Black British civil rights activists and pioneers in a multiplicity of fields. Um, you went on to say um, uh, one of the major focus of the Black, uh, one of the major focus in Britain schools curriculum is misconstrued idea that black history, uh, um, black people living in the UK begin slowly as, as, as slaves. Um, I want you to, you know, speak a little bit more on that because I agree with the fact that, um, uh, I guess you could kind of analyze, um, and, 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 um, see the similarity in how black history is set up as well in the U in the U S, um, where, um, I feel that um, the, the parts that um, shouldn't necessarily be highlighted in, from a historical point of view um, is highlighted in a way that is educational, but um, same kind of demanding as well when you kind of um, look at it in that, in that sense. Um, so I want you to speak a little bit more on um, what, what you were saying in that uh, blog post. Yeah. That was so, okay, was so long ago that I see the writing and like this is <laughs> university writing um i think we're just thankful for the growth um the essence of what i was trying to convey is that these really flat linear narratives that we are getting around black history particularly around the narrative of slavery is a very disempowering narrative it's an accurate narrative and it also it disempowers people um when we're looking at European constructions of backness and you know um, what is deemed to be like moral and what is deemed to be right, um, what we're actually kind of understanding through this is that there is an association of blackness to be the opposite of those things, right? And um, I start that was the starting point. It was really kind of trying to understand, well, if we're looking back into history, you know, to pick out certain works like by authors such as Joseph Conrad, where he explains that, you know, um, in his book, The Heart of Darkness, like black people would be like no souls. It's just very, um, these narratives are very, very harmful because there's no recognition of our humanity within that. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, starting at that baseline for me was the point of, of that article because um, without you know us recognizing that humanity there is really no progression whether or not we want to stick on a back history month whether or not we want to perform some quotas in the workplace and whether or not we decide to you know um maybe create a film about black people if there is no recognition of huma our humanity within that and therefore the active work that we are doing it contributes more and more to the erasure so um i think for me you know these gestures very tokenistic actions that we often do see um 
serve no purpose if we're not engaging with the people on the ground, if we're not engaging with current people who are creating history, because we're active, we're alive. And I think it's just recognizing that humanity as the baseline before we you know, start to do other types of things that celebrate blackness. Absolutely. Um, and I think that is something that is not just in the past, but something that is still now to this day being uh, stripped away from people of African descent is our, you know, our humanity and our, and our dignity um, that um, in my opinion, it's not something that, you know, someone gives you. Um, it's something you have to, you know, realize you have already and yeah. um, uphold it. But mm-hmm. um, as far as the conditioning of where we are uh, currently are right now, um, it certainly do feel that way because it's more of a, um, a mental, mental battle now. Um, mm. But to your point of what you were saying about it feeling like this, the feeling that it gives off, you know, um, me being a visual person, I've always um, off button by the fact that um, anything that had to do with um, black um, history or, or slavery were, you know, shackles and chains. Um, and just uh, and something I compared to, uh, I don't know if you have seen it or have seen the movie cover, uh, uh, Schindler's, Schindler's List. Um, uh, thing about the about the Holocaust, but the mm-hmm. cover of that is a man holding a child's hand, and there's a list of names. And I thought that was such a powerful cover because um, it's it's very one is inviting um, mm-hmm. to any any race a person um mm-hmm. to um i guess it's more um easier i'm not a jewish person so i can speak from that perspective but i would imagine that it's most e- uh, easier for them to consume you know their own history and and protective and not uh and i have some sort of uh aggressive nature to it as as um as you know trying to separate themselves from what happened in the past because I feel like that's what a lot of um, people of African uh, descent, uh, Black Americans, anywhere you are, kind of feel is that, you know, what we are being fed is not how we feel. Um, and certainly is not definitely that from an image perspective is definitely um, not how, you know, the people who was going through those harsh conditions felt. Um, and, you know, the, the humanity is in the survival story. Um, because mm-hmm. that was the only thing that kept them going is, you know, um, love um, for one another as, as humans, even though um, sad people um, didn't look at them that way, but they saw each other that way. And that was what was sustaining for them. And, and so from a visual perspective, I've always been outputting about um, mm-hmm. a lot of uh, like black history or slave history that surrounds black people. And, and in America, I don't know about the UK, but in America, they're very aggressive. Um, like 12 years of slaves and mm. everywhere. They put it all in your face. Mm. And, uh, and yeah, you know, it's just, it's, it's just very kind of weird to kind of sit with. And, mm. and you know, it's, and also, and, and to your point, trying to take it all in within a month. Um, imagine if you're going to the gym and you just, go went super hard just one month and and that was it you right. probably shouldn't have gone at all um so that's how i feel about you know 
the one month as a history thing and mm-hmm. um and trying to and in my opinion i think the best approach is trying to have people understand yeah it's out there and it's you know structured that way but it's not something you have to follow necessarily and you know you could you could celebrate whenever you could do anything whenever um and and like i said for me i, I think now with the progression of time and, and technology and society, I think uh, it's more of a mental uh, thing now rather than, you know, like physical and definitely starts with um, education for sure. Right. I really like what you said about the mental aspects of it and, you know, feeding that into the repetition, psychologically damaging. And I think on the other hand, if there's no, if there's nothing to counter that, or nothing right. of substance to counter it, then you're almost going to either believe it or disassociate completely. Exactly. And so what we've seen is that like there is um on the opposite end, like you know, very pro uh radical images, what would say radical. Um, maybe you have like a picture of Martin Luther King and Nelson Mandela and um Malcolm X, but there's no like engagement with what that actually means and how it applies to people today which is important yeah and and you speak of of uh of Malcolm X um one of the actually so my my studio UNA uh, short for unapologetic uh, design company um the mental aspect of it it's model after um te- teachings of Malcolm X um my, my favorite figure in history um but one of the most uh, powerful um, image of him I think a lot of people are familiar with um, to 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 ex, you know expand on a conversation we were talking about of of image, um, it's I think he he's by the window with I don't know uh, with 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 a gun by the window peeking out, and mm-hmm. most people don't know what the context of that image is. Um, mm-hmm. That was you know after his house um, was you know like people threw bricks at his house. Uh, mm-hmm. trying to bomb his house um her his family had i think two daughters um and so like people didn't understand the context of what that mm-hmm. image meant and and then that image became a symbol of uh by any means necessary where now um, people are attaching the, the violent nature um mm-hmm. to, uh, you know a black person mm-hmm. and who and again supposed to be you know a leader um and so if you're looking at the leader as a violent person, then obviously the followers um, or the people in the group are like mine. And mm-hmm. again, and I think that image alone kind of took a lot away from who he was as a man. And mm-hmm. um, and um, and and then I've been, you know, kind of realizing a lot of that in other um, figures as well, um, with the likes of MLK, uh, Bob Marley, um, Peter Tosh, and some other people. Um, mm-hmm. for a while where you know um the message is good in what they do but um, in terms of like ownership and all of that um they themselves don't control that so the people who control that is able to kind of dic- uh, dictate the story and mm-hmm. how the you know forever storyline goes um, which is the most important thing teach them because I, I did not know that but you t- you touched on a really really good point the manufacturing of of these people in history and it's you know images are really powerful 100 percent yeah it really is and and you know like i just told you my studio 
a model after Malcolm X, you know, I, I never met him. You know, I wasn't born in his, his time. And, mm-hmm. and so all I had was, you know, images um, that was, uh, that pulled me in. And then mm-hmm. I was wise enough to, you know, step aside and, and read more um, and put, put in my own research. And, and, you know, and that's something that other people don't do that, you know, they just get um, stuck with what they're fed and they kind of defend and even defend that concept with their lives. Um, but um, like I said, for me, I had to rely on those images to pull me in. Um, mm. And so if I solely, solely just relied on what was given to me, um, I probably would have had um, a misdirection in, in what, you know, he, he was trying to do. And, you know, I'm, I'm still definitely learning um, to the best of my abilities as well. We have a, we have a neighbor going by, obviously. <laughs> Perfect timing. Um, but uh, you, you have a book coming out, uh, Spring of 2023, um, yep. titled Omitted. Um, you want to talk a little bit more about that and um, what people can hope to learn about uh, African-American history? and a little bit about themselves. Yeah, sure. So the book, yes, it's called Omitted. It's out, it's not out yet, but you can pre-order it. It's out in 2023. And the premise of the book is um, black histories that we don't know that will have an impact on our future. So it's really kind of thinking about what are the untold stories that really have shaped our reality today? and I'm touching on not only UK history, I'm touching on um, parts of the Caribbean, obviously countries within Africa, also parts of you know, African-American history, in order to piece together this wider story that will enable us to actually make concrete changes. So, you know, leading up to the death of George Floyd, and you know, I, I only use this as a case in point because the book came from that. Um, there were a lot of kind of reception um, to black organizations and black work um, as a result of his murder. Um, But do we know what are the lessons that led to there, right? And what are the parallels in history that we can draw on so that we can ensure, you know, we are protected as a community, we are knowledgeable, um, and we also have the tools and the armor to go forward. So I think, you know, education is where it starts. So it's really thinking about social history but giving that lesson as well. So um, I see it as a very kind of poetic book that weaves in my own experiences as well. Um, So yeah, I'm currently writing um, a chapter that is deeply personal, but I'm hoping that, you know, not only is my my experiences as an activist, but some of the other broader experiences that I know a lot of other black people have gone through in the UK, you know, wider social lessons are shown and, yeah, with the hope of us actually learning it. Mm. It's powerful. Um, I like the fact that you are trying to unearth different history of different parts and put them together. Um, so you're currently writing on, we're still working on the book and um, it's going to be out spring of 2023, title omitted. Um, was there a second part to the title? Um, the untold black history lessons that we should know for our future. Mm, that's powerful. Um, yeah. Because I feel like, um, like we were just talking, you know, history is a very powerful thing. And um, depending on how it's told, it, it could help shape the mind of, of someone 
in a negative or positive way. Um, mm. But uh, a little bit, we were speaking about black figures. Um, uh, I want to ask you, did you know, something I recently found out, uh, did you know Beethoven was, was black? I did. I heard about it on Twitter. <laughs> was, that was, I, mean, uh... <laughs> I think there was a thread and I was like, wow. <laughs> Just, I'm not surprised. I'm really not surprised. But um, yeah, it's definitely disappointing that I didn't know that earlier. Yeah, but um, I felt the same way. And, and you know, to, to the, the point uh, we were stressing earlier about, you know, uh, like having the history being there, but not fully um, educating. Um, you know, like I've, I've known Beethoven since, you know, mm -hmm. I don't know, since uh, I don't even know what grade I was in, but I've known him like forever and the music and everything. And so, but not once did someone um, speak on you know, the person, um, but it was always talked about in the sense that this was some kind of Caucasian person. Um, and, and, um, and yeah, but finding that out was, was kind of, it's kind of odd. I felt, mm -hmm. um, felt kind of late to some sort of party, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but at the and same how, how, did, how did you reconcile that? Um, for me, uh, like like I said, like since being a kid, history has been like my favorite um, subject. I'm not necessarily, or I wasn't necessarily too surprised. And even with um, the you know unlawful murder of uh, George Floyd, when that happened, um, I remember feeling numb. But at the same time, I wasn't surprised that it happened. Um, mm -hmm. And and um, and for me, I always try to like compare and contrast, but with the Beethoven uh, thing, I found out most likely probably through a friend or something. And I just remember we were chatting about it and um, she was a musician or still is a musician and she didn't even know. And she was like, yeah, I found out recently too. And so like, it's, it was crazy. Um, but I don't know if you're familiar with uh, a Burner Boy uh, music. Uh, um, yeah, one of my uh, favorite um, African artists, him and I run town, um, just insane. Uh, but he put out a, a song, I don't know, not too long ago, uh, titled Monsters with another a person. I don't know if you remember uh, um, or I have listened to it. Sorry. Um, but in the song he talked, I'm paraphrasing, of course, but he talked about um, like the education um, that is being fed to uh, black kids in Africa. And he said something along the lines of uh, him growing up and not paying attention in school because um, the teachers were teaching European lessons in his African school that he didn't connect with. So he was, you know, misbehaving and cutting school and, and not fully paying attention. And I think a lot of part of that is, you know, in a lot of um, other communities and other countries um, where as a person you're being, you know, given this history. Um, and I believe truly as people, our intuition allows us to know what's um, true and what's false when we we're, when we we're kids. And like we were stating earlier um, about our mental faculties that a lot of people kind of, uh, you know, are pulled away from, you know, tapping into that, you know, mental, God-given mental faculties um, to allow them to, you know, stay at the core or 
um, kind of know if they're off off center or you know what's true or not. But I feel like a lot of like we're when we're little, we all have that, and we're able to kind of um, take in information with you know maybe raising an eyebrow and, and you know or you know if if it's if it's you know well said, then taking it in wholeheartedly. But uh, I feel like part of what he said with you know uh, skipping school because of a certain reason and not connecting to the education I was given to him. I think as a kid, I felt that as well. Um, where like, you know, I never felt the need for the education that was given to me because it ain't correlate with my environment and um, it ain't correlate with the people. And it ain't correlate with the most importantly, the culture that um, that I was in. Um, so a little bit about me, I uh, spent my early childhood in West Africa, um, Liberia, and then I came to the U.S. in 09 and I attended middle school and high school and college. And so it's like this clash of, you know, of things. And um, for me, history was always something that for me always stayed the same, regardless. Even when I was in Africa, I was learning about white people, um, like white historical figures um, for no reason. Absolutely no reason. Um, and then I came to the U.S. and and I was like, OK. They got history here, but they aren't, they aren't teaching me about black people. I was learning about white people and when I was in history, um, when I was in Africa. And I'm over here when I'm being fed about black people. It's not, you know, as in depth or, you know, it's, it's, it's not as good as what I was learning about, you know, those quote unquote white uh, founders, colonizers in the early days. Um, and Liberia, a little bit about the history of Liberia, um, Candace independence in 1845 or 47. Um, and one of the, the first um, oldest country in, in uh, Africa to be independent and um, came about because Liberia was a location selected by, um, I guess, slave owners and other people in the U.S. at the time. Um, to be a spot for um, the runaways and the quote-unquote um, hard-headed slaves, meaning humans who knew the fact that they weren't slaves. Um, and so they packaged all of these people and shipped them out and told them they were going to be free. And, um, and so that land became Liberia, and the model of Liberia is set up similarly to the U.S., even like streets' names and, and things out there is all in the U.S., the flag is the same. It's very odd to me. Um, but um, what was crazy to me as a kid learning about the history was these people were sent there to be free, but that very first president was a white person. Um, and so that didn't sit right to me that um, that these people were free and, and they, you know, could run their own countries and do their own things. Yet the very first president was a white person of the very first black um, independent country. Um, mm. and, and so it's, you know, in terms of the image, when you look at, um, at the time, they were probably like, yeah, you know, it's probably best. But in, again, speaking of longevity, um, the story is always gonna be that um, people of African uh, descent aren't able to get from A to B without the help of a white person. And, and I think that's at the core of all black history. Um, and it, that's not necessarily true, but it's always written and said that way. 
Um, and so at a very early age, I always kind of picked apart things. And then when I came to the U.S., I was learning about um, uh, just like uh, civil rights or civil war um, figures and generals over here. And I remember just, just um, remember my first experience in history class, the teacher was asking me about there's a general called Ulysses S. Grant. And I was like, I don't know about him. <laughs> um, but uh, it was like it was very um, clashing in terms of just understanding that regardless, understanding where you grow up, your perspective would be very different on people and the understanding of things. That was when I started to expand um, my uh, just like knowledge for just figures. Um, and as you said, and most of the things now that, you know, even I consume um, now is like, uh, it's not so much about race. It's about, you know, what's needed for me as an individual. But um, I'm very mindful because of the fact that um, I also have uh, siblings and, you know, representation is key um, in, in the littlest of uh, things or, or department or anything um, that I do. Um, I, want, I want you to uh, speak a little bit on representation and, and what you think it means in terms of, you know, um, preparing for the future, you know, going off of. Um, the title of your book. So much to, to meditate on there. Um, representation, I think, as a concept is something that we morally, maybe not morally, more ethically, kind of more inclined to want to believe in this idea of having um, representative beliefs, representative people, um, you know, to really kind of ground who we are, our ideas, our belief systems, um, and kind of give us that, that air of credibility and movement within the world. So I think it's something that everybody kind of does look for, every human being, that idea of being represented. Um, I would like to say that Within that, there is um, maybe maybe a disconnect between what we need as people and what um, is needed for us to progress within the system. Mm -hmm. So when we're thinking about like representation as Black people within maybe the UK, um, I know that I cannot see someone who looks like me in a place of power and then give them that full trust because of the fact that that representation is a creation of the system that we are in. Mm. And that's just that's my personal belief. I think though, it is very powerful for younger people, it is really powerful for um, those who haven't seen other forms of representation to see that as something that they can um, not aspire to, but understand that it is possible and that there are forms of like growing and achieving in this world that you know, it's, it's possible for everybody. Um, but I think the damage and the danger rather comes in when we see that as the only form of progression um, because representation in the system means that you have to almost, mm. you know, have identical beliefs to the status quo. Sometimes it, it means that you have to maybe sacrifice some of your values. I'm not saying this is the case for, for everything and everyone, but I think sometimes the weight of representation you know, makes us overlook 
the power of resilience and the power of being able to do have agency and do things ourselves. Um, so I would say that I love the idea, but I proceed with an air of trepidation because I've seen how it plays out in history and I see how often so much credit is given to it and that there, there is no kind of um, that carrot that was dangling disappears. So I think representation is important, but I think we've got to just be very cautious about who we give that air of credibility to for ourselves. And um, instead of looking for it from the system, look for it within. Mm. That's very powerful. Um, search from within. Um, it's always something I try to do whenever I feel off, off center. I'm just, um, regardless of what the situation is, just like, you know, like what's needed or um, on, on my end that, you know, could get me to the next level or get me better understanding of things. Um, so I, I really like how you kind of put that as far as, you know, acknowledging what's out there, taking what you need, but, you know, um, searching deeper from within. Um, very powerful. Um, I want to talk to you. Um, I feel like it's kind of kind of been intense a little bit um, since we jumped in. Uh, but want to, you know, turn up the volume a little bit. Um, why not? Um, I'm sure, you know, like uh, there's adversity and things everywhere. Um, but being a, a young uh, Black woman, I'm sure it's even magnifying that sense of like accomplishments and things in the world. Um, because something I'm being more um, not like, like in the past that I think it's like the awareness was not necessarily there um, until my little sister was born mm -hmm. in, in 2010 and just like watching her grow and, and understanding how like different she is for me and, and, and um, understanding um, the requirements that she would need um, in the world or from the world. It's very different from, you know, me and my perspective and my brother's, my little brother's perspective is very different and, and the different need of like catering. Um, and, you know, it's something that's not, you know, like evenly played out um, when you talk about, you know, the gender roles. Um, and then when you talk about, you know, women, it's, it's a different thing. And then you have uh, black women who were in most time very, you know, um, being stepped on. But, um, you know, historically speaking, uh, black women have, you know, um, invented a lot of things that other people um, indulge in and use um, that, um, you know, it's kind of off-putting when you kind of get into it and, and see. But at the same time, uh, what I want to talk to you about is more on a personal level. Um, rather than focusing on, on a global problem. Um, is there, uh, um, have you faced any um, racial or, or gender uh, bias um, in, in your line of work? Yes, 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 yes. Uh, there's some things I want to say, just to preface what I'm going to go into. Do not mistake Black women's self-respect for them being rude. You know, we've heard it over again. You know, black women are allowed, we're opinionated. But I think like it's very easy, and not I'm not just speaking of like, you know, one type of race. It's very easy for general populations to just mischaracterize black women for what, for who they are. And I think because sometimes we are very um 
kind of like understood to, to be either this or that it's very easy to like see yourself and I'm seeing it now more objectively see yourself literally turn from um being being almost deified to villainized and that line is very it's not um the boundary is very thin so um in my line of work um I think as a 24 year old CEO um, who is a black woman I definitely feel like the first thing for me was to just make sure that who I'm surrounded by are people who understand can kind of connect with who I am but also um are that themselves as well so a lot of my team are black women um and I think number one that's important for me to build that that kind of air of psychological safety and I'm not saying that all skin folk are kin folk because that is a lie but I think it's very easy to um get caught up in the what we have now is like diversity and inclusion and being inclusive and having um so many different types of people around you when sometimes you just don't feel safe so I'm unapologetically unashamed to say that my team are black and that's the way I want it um because I've been in you know places where I just don't feel psychologically safe so that's the first thing the second thing um is even within that sometimes as I said it's very easy for you to be seen as like you know superwoman and you know often that's the characterization of people within history even Nanny of the Maroons seen as a superwoman seen as like you know um having these supernatural powers to the expense of your humanity so I make it very very clear to people when I'm having bad days this is a bad day for me I'm feeling really vulnerable I let I let people and I make sure that people actually know and see that human side of me as well because I think it's very easy to just think oh amazing all these titles all these accolades and then um almost that respect is is lost in that as well um and on the third level I really don't talk about my age a lot like I've only really just started talking about it as of last month because my friend was like you know you're you're doing bits, you should probably start talking more about it. Um, but I think the, the reason why I don't is because I've, I see it sometimes, well, in the past, I really saw it as something that I was judged by. And um, I'd often be in rooms of older white males with older women, older men, and see and get this feeling of like imposter syndrome, like why are you here sort of thing. And, um, you know, I remember being on a board once, uh, someone invited me to be on their board and the first day I was invited on their board it was like I had my I had my locks up in a bun at top and then they were just like oh yeah your hair looks like a pineapple haha <laughs> and I was like that's sweet goodbye like I left their board very quickly and I think it's just knowing that I don't have to tolerate that disrespect I don't have to you know I don't have to be in environments where I feel unsafe and so I think I'm very aware of who I am and the multiple identities that either people place on me or are a fact like me being young and um I analyze those very carefully and yeah make sure that I feel safe even though you can't predict or know when someone is going to racially try to stereotype you but um yeah it has happened but I, as I said I have my ways of navigating that and my boundaries mm. um that's that's powerful um, in, in how you position yourself around those things. Um, so, but um, I wrote a few things down that you that jumped at me. You talked about your psychological safety. Um, mm -hmm. 
which I think is very powerful because not a lot of uh, uh, women in the African community or just women of African descent are tapped into the psychological part of that well-being. And, and you talked, talked about also um, feeling like superwoman um, or being expected to be superwoman. Mm-hmm. And, and I think part of that is in the conditioning of um, having uh, Black women cater to the upbringing of uh, white families in that, that either that, that homes or that, 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 that children. Um, one of the wildest concepts that me personally, I've never gotten over is that the fact you could, you know, racially um, abuse someone or physically abuse them and then turn around and have them cater to your, to your, your child. Mm. Like, if, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like, that is really messed up. But um, I think because of that, um, with the progression of history, a lot of women do um, put themselves in that role and, 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 and try to fit that um, boxes. And, and similar to um, like masculinity, where um, a lot of uh, dudes are, you know, how they are because of, you know, the, the, the stereotype of what a male is supposed to be represent and do um, and quote unquote conquer. Um, and then another thing you said also is like self-awareness, um, regardless of what's happening, you're self-aware um, of, you know, what to do and how to, how to react. Um, and even that little story you just told of, you know, standing up for, you know, your hair, um, it's very powerful because of the fact that, you know, that, that person who made that statement is not going to think twice, um, before saying that again, or (laughs) I don't know, but you know, it's, it's something that, you know, that was probably never a reaction to, to that before you know, and you had a reaction to it. So that's going to put a thought to that in that person's uh, mind next time. Um, but one thing I can relate to um, on, the, on, the, on the opposite end of the um, gender is ageism, is that I've been in rooms as well where I've been looked down upon. Um, I personally, I don't care. I mean, I, I care, but like, I'm never like, my focus is never like racially, whatever, if I'm in a room or whatever. And mm-hmm. I, I met a, a, a great architect, um, I think back in 2018 in Philly, when I was back in the city and um, I was freelancing with them for some, uh, for some months and he was telling me, funny enough, his name is also Emmanuel. And he was telling me about, um, yeah, he was, uh, he was, uh, he was like 75 and he come in with a, with a stogie in his mouth, with a, and his, and his cane and he walked to his office and he smoked in there okay <laughs> why not was like, I, he was like I, I own the firm i was like say less <laughs> um but he was telling me about um just like him and i would be having a conversation like i'll be working and he'll pull me in he's like come come sit in here let's chat and i'll be like sure you guys are paying me <laughs> um but I, I i really loved chatting with him because he, he would tell me about stuff um, about, you know, like back in the day, like Boston in the 70s, how to treat uh, a black students that attended college there um, and the black architects back in the day and things they had to put in place so they could, you know, um, make sure it was a, you know, a fair a playing field for them. And he was telling me, um, even though he was educated in Boston, 
and he wanted to um, set up a firm there. He knew for a fact that, um, you know, he 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 was um, he wasn't going to be able to do that because of how Boston is set up racially. And and he and he told me, he said his personal story of him wanting to become an architect um, was um, like his mother was was a maid for an architect um, when he was a kid and she would take him to, you know, like clean the house and things like that. And he would watch the house and just look around and things like that. And, um, and, and he, and he was like, he told his mom that he was going to uh, build her, her house, design a bear house similar to that. And I guess that was the start of his story. But what he told me was, um, regardless of how I looked at it, um, that I was always going to be a black designer before anything else. Um, and so at the time when he said it, I, I didn't really like it. And I told him that, you know, that's mm -hmm. not who I am. That's not how I see myself. And but what he was trying to tell me was that's how the world sees you. So um, that's something you have to be comfortable with in order to progress. Um, and so for me, and that is something, you know, I'm always aware of. So if I'm, if I'm in the room, if people are staring because of that, it don't necessarily affect me because that is something that's already locked in. Um, but in terms of the ageism, uh, recently, my uh, most recent experience was after I left the firm I was working with, um, 2020 in-house, I left them and we, you know, ended on good terms. Uh, the owner and I actually chatted on a podcast episode not too recent. Uh, not too long ago and uh but whereas when i left i got a recommendation to work with another uh, agency in philly uh on like a freelance gig and um they was trying to bring me on to work on this sports project for um just kind of on, on like the high end and mm. and and so i was i was excited obviously to work with them mm. and they had you know contacted me and brought me in i sat down with them and they gave me the scope of the project and I told them how much I was comfortable getting paid hourly. Um, and there was a bit of a blowback on, on like the figure, but um, the dude was like, okay, I'll, I'll take it to my team and we'll see what we could do. He took it to his team, came back. And um, for some reason, kind of half what I had asked for. And, um, and I, I wasn't sure necessarily what was happening. You know, was it experience, um, age, you know, race. Um, mm -hmm. But one thing I do know is I know, I, you know, I'm good at what I do. And, and so immediately I was like, okay, it's not about experience. Um, and then uh, we progressed with the negotiation and um, they got things finalized and they sent over that contract. And I remember it was about 8.30 or so. I'm reading it at night and and you know got to the fine print and all of that good stuff and they're talking about the ownership of my work and being able to so a little bit on the numbers and this project the previous year had dropped and they put out on that first launch they put out i think like 200 um 200 in total to put out about 200,000 items and it's sold in a, in a matter of minutes because it's like a global thing um and it's like sports equipment stuff like that um mm. so so like so they was bringing me on the project as a revamp to up the original design that has sold out um mm. so i understood the value that i was bringing to them and um and so when i was reading the contract it didn't add up and so 
I called the owner who I had met in, in the firm and we chatting and I was telling him I'm not totally uh, comfortable with um, the, mm. the, the agency owning my, you know, sketches mm. and, and my artwork and all of my, uh, you know, original files, um, you know, forever. Um, they had put in a contract, they wanted to own it in uh, perpetuity and, mm. and, um, and it's like ownership. And so, but for me, I was, I'm okay with giving you the work I created it for you, uh, but you have to compensate me. And, mm-hmm. and so I was telling him, uh, one, I wasn't comfortable with the hourly and now ownership. I could give you guys uh, a one-year owner's right, and then we could revisit a contract. And, and we kept going back and forth. And then after I had, you know, respectfully told him what, you know, how I felt about what I was reading, um, he, like, paused a little bit and was like, uh, listen here young man i was like whoa <laughs> literally his first words out of his mouth and i was like whoa and he's wow. like and he's like yeah you are he's like i understand you're a young dude in the game but this is how it is you know you're gonna have to you know bite down from time to time and honestly i don't remember he talked for maybe about three three minutes after that i don't remember where he said after that um and and yeah i was like but um, to his knowledge, or I guess not knowing, I told him, I was like, um, I understand what you're saying, but I have been freelancing for the last six years. You know, I literally um, put myself through college, a portion of it through freelance. That was how, you know, I got out of college and decided to do my own thing. It wasn't just, you know, nothing just fell in my lap. But um, Respect my name. <laughs> <laughs> definitely. <laughs> Um, but yeah, and then, and, but that was so like shocking to me, um, because mm. I have met this dude mm. twice, um, mm. in a matter of like a week and nicest person, nicest through our conversations, um, nice and definitely knew he was asking us in a little bit, um, in terms of our conversation. And I was like, okay, you know, I respect your work. I respect the agency. I respect what you guys do. And I'm glad that you were, you know, um, enthusiastic about bringing me on board. And I would love to work with you guys. And so following up, following up on the contract and when, you know, actually matters. Um, yeah. and, he, and, he, and he's trying to, you know, play um, mind games and, and, and throw in the age and things like that. And so that, in a sense, made me think a lot more, you know, beyond age. So I respect, respectfully turned down that project. Um, which was, you know, going to be, you know, a decent few thousand bucks. But um, after I turned down that project, um, some weeks later, I landed uh, a project with uh, a free form, which is a TV network. And we ended up doing some some great things. Um, Respectfully. <laughs> um, but yeah, that was uh, my very first uh, professional instance of that. And um, that kind of stunk a little bit. Um, yeah. But it was also... Um, a male-to-male um, uh, relationship, uh, but um, f- from a racial standpoint, it was a white male to a, you know a black male um, mm. relationship, and mm. so I can't even like imagine um, putting a, a female in that um, that story and and seeing how worse perhaps that you know that story can get um, because mm. um, I've noticed that you know males tend to um, 
not necessarily interact, but show a certain respect um, yeah. when they're dealing with other males that they don't necessarily show to uh, women who are um, actually at times be their bosses or, you know, in, you know, more powerful positions than them. But that was very off-putting to me. And, and since then, I've been really particular, as always, about um, projects and people um, that I work with. Somewhat of a, a long answer. No, but you have to be. I think it's really important to like set your terms and yeah, respect yourself because no one will respect you if you don't. So <laughs> absolutely. Um, uh, what what is the most important uh, quality you feel a young um, African female writer needs to have? Ability to listen. Mm. That was that was and is something that stays with me. Um, to be able to write, you've got to be able to translate. Mm. You've, got to be tra you've got to be able to translate what's happening around you. And to be able to do that, you've got to observe and then listen. To, and I'm not just listening with your ears, listen with your eyes. You see, you observe, you, do you know what I mean? You don't always have to verbalize. I think it's just being able to just absorb mm. and push that out. So I'd say like, we can sometimes get in our own ways because we're so like passionate about something and we're not really kind of getting the essence of maybe what's happening or what that person or um, situation is trying to convey. Um, but I think to be able to have really powerful writing, you've got to be able to listen, digest and spend that time going back. And, you know, sometimes you just got to recall things in your head. Um, but yeah, my, my grandma always used to say, you must listen. And it wasn't like a, like just listen to me speak is listen to understand right what's happening. it's a deeper type of listening maybe it's maybe because this is the english language it's maybe limiting maybe there is another word another language for what i'm trying to say but it's it's the ability to capture the essence of what's happening mm. yeah yeah that's powerful um i remember some years back i came across the quote that has served me well um in line with what you're saying um to listen to to understand not just to hear and mm. that that stuck with me and mm. it made me more attentive and um, in terms of um just understanding it, it it gave me a much deeper uh response when you mm. know and, and it taught me to you know speak when i had something to add to the conversation not just to you know just to speak so that's very powerful um mm. key to being a good writer is listening who would have thought <laughs> um how important you think it is to be stubborn and relentless in the pursuit of what makes you happy in this life i love that you've said stubborn i love it because stubborn gets such a it gets such a bad rap like that is true <laughs> it's such a good word because it means that you just know what you want like when we label things and children and like, oh yeah they're stubborn no it, they just clear on what they want and that's fine so I think it's really important to be stubborn I think it's really key to be driven and relentless in your pursuit of your goal and you know sometimes it, for me it has it has manifested in like um just staying laser focused and when I think back to university um what that meant for me when I was, you know, did my dissertation on maroon communities in Brazil and Jamaica, I actually had to change my dissertation supervisor because he just weren't getting it. 
I was trying to convey to him that this was, you know, much more than just a class issue. There was a lens of like, you know, there was an element of race, racial, there was, there's a racial element in there that, you know, superseded just the national, it was a very international thing. And he just was trying to argue with me to kind of get me to con like convince me that it was something else. And I was just like, no, like this is what I want to write. This is what I believe. And so, you know, two weeks before the deadline, I changed my, super, you know, my dissertation supervisor because for me, it was really important to have someone who not only would market well, but understood where I was coming from. And um, yeah, God bless Andrew Newsham, big up yourself because um, he got it, he still gets it. And I think, yeah, when, you, when you're trying to achieve something, you can't let anyone get in your way um, or anything. So it's, yeah, really important to just have that, that focus because either, if you don't, you'll be, uh, there's a quote I want to say, but I can't remember it. But essentially you have no backbone and you'll be able to be manipulated and pulled in other directions that aren't true to you. Mm. That's powerful. I agree with that. Um, definitely 100%. Um, I, I would say something, something like that is something I try to reflect on as well. Whenever, um, like I, I'm someone who like when I'm, when I'm in season, I go as hard as I can. And like yeah. when I'm off season, um, I'm off season. And, you know, I, I try to like, you know, take in nature, movies, music. Well, music, I play all, all hours of the day. Um, I consume too much music. Um, but like, I, <laughs> I agree with that. I second that. Um, but uh, yeah, mu music is life. You read about that. Um, but it just like in terms of, you know, we, we speaking on you know, being stubborn and relentless, um, in the pursuit of what you believe is yours. Um, but, um, where do you find a balance, um, at times when you, you know, you do hit those, uh, creative blocks, uh, writer's blocks, I guess they call it. Um, but, um, how, how do you, you know, kind of refocus, ref refresh and, and, you know, just kind of replenish yourself to, you know, get back onto your, your journey. Uh, I stay in it. I stay in it mm. because sometimes emotions are just emotions and they, they are there for a present time and it will pass. So I never really rush myself out of it. Um, at all I, if I'm feeling sad I always sit there and cry if I'm happy maybe that's not the reason for the create you know the writer's block or the creative block but maybe if I'm feeling um, like disconnected I will find out why I'm feeling disconnected so I'll do a lot of introspection and maybe the sources that I just you know I miss somebody and I just want to see them so I think it's just it's a really important to honor your feelings honor how you feel but don't let that control the outcome mm. um, so yeah, nature's great. I think for me, that's one of the things I like to do. I get out, um, I also rest a lot. So I'm really trying to integrate into my routine, not only the ability to just nap and sleep longer, but taking breaks from things that are taking, just taxing emotionally and mentally and checking out from that. And I think honoring that really allows me the ability to go back into my practice with a lot more strength and clarity, yeah. Yeah, um, napping these days is like a superpower. I am. Um, <laughs> um, if if you had if you had a time machine, would you go back in time to meet your ancestors, or forward in time to meet your descendants? 
that's that's interesting I guess which whichever way you go <laughs> you're still going to be happy um so I think I'm gonna go back in time I'm sorry <laughs> I, <want to> <laughs> I think you gotta keep the vision looking forward um so I'll go to meet my descendants I'll go bless them you know we'll have a cup of tea maybe a nap yeah. <laughs> teach them the art of napping <laughs> and how important it is yes. to our well-being um would you rather speak all languages or be able to speak to animals all languages um oh, really i would you're I the would. first person who, who said that everyone else is like they want to speak to our animals the first wow. thing i i prefer people mm. wow okay um i honestly i don't i don't necessarily know my answer for that question yet um because i'm kind of split in the middle um mm -hmm. but i would say i'm more leaning towards the people because of um like i feel like animals already know that order and what to do in life right people we we seem to not you know get it at times <laughs> right maybe there's a bit of miscommunication yeah <laughs> communicate well um I have another one for you. Um, this one is a little tough. Um, never hear music again or lose your ability to read? No, I think I'll keep the ability to read because you can still hear the music. If you can read notes, <laughs> you can hear it in your head. You might, not, <laughs> you might not hear it, but you might hear it in your head. Um, yeah, I'll keep it to read because I feel like the imagination is important. And music is that as well, but I feel like mm. you can read so many different things. You could, mm. you know, yeah, you can read so many different things. So, yeah, reading. Oh, very logical answer. Um, I got one more. What's, um, what's one rule your parents enforced on you when you were a kid? It could have been something like house rules or you know, personal rules or something. Mm. Oh my God. Okay. So I was not funny enough allowed to use a computer um, unless I was at school. So my mom, instead of me using the internet, like had these encyclopedias in the house. And for my homework, I had to, I had to use the encyclopedias. Like, yeah, I think that was the, the thing. Wow. Yeah. You, you think that helped with your writing? Possibly. I would, I would, I would say it helped me to be a lot more, like, I guess my curiosity. Because mm. when you're in, it's like, it's just so many facts. And you're just like, oh, okay. So, yeah, maybe. Wow. Yeah. yeah that's, that's something. That's something. Um, I, said, I think that's a good practice. Um, I mean, probably when you was going through it, you was, you know, a little frustrated. But um. <laughs> right, good, good practice for a healthy you know paradigm and later on yeah. um but um one last one okay. um you can only eat one food again for the rest of your life uh what is it <laughs> I, I feel like you don't you don't like that answer already <laughs> <laughs> wow it's got to be planting it has to be planting uh wow uh, why is yeah. that because it's the best it's just it's just so it's just so beautiful like 
the <laughs> texture, just everything about it is just, it's just lovely. It's a delicacy. It's something you could have for breakfast, lunch, dinner. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. I love it. Mm, absolutely. Um, well, I'm, I'm from Africa, so my go-to is fried plantain, fried ripe plantains. Yes. Um, it's my go-to. Um, yeah, it has to be fried for sure. But do you know what? People would say now that baked arguably is better than fried. Mm. It's less oil, et cetera, but I'm still, I'm fried every day. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I think that's, uh, it's kind of, it has a little bit of nostalgia to it as well. Um, when you do, you know, kind of have a moment to actually eat and, and you know, not just rush through your food. Um, but uh, before we wrap up, um, I want to thank you for your time. Um, thank you for, you know, the great conversation we had. Thank you for opening up. Um, I appreciate you and all that you've accomplished with the Black curriculum and continue to do um, for the betterment of humanity. And, and I think you are a light that, you know, that is bright and is shine all the way out here in the U.S. And I'm always smiling when I tell people about you and what you do. And, and, um, and again, grateful for your time and glad Thank we, you. you know, had the time to chat today. Thank you. It was such a lovely chat and I need you to do all my outros in the <laughs> in next couple of years. It was a pleasure talking and thank you for um, creating our logo. I think it's just so powerful and it just speaks to who we are. So thank, thank you. you. I'm, I'm glad you like that, that logo. Um, before we, before we wrapped up, um, hopefully another thing is I hope to, you know, get a chance to, uh, one day kind of, um, see what you guys are doing in person over there someday. Um, but before we wrap up, yeah, absolutely. Fingers crossed before we wrap up, um, let the people know a little bit more about what they can expect from the black curriculum and where to find you on social media and, and websites okay cool so um to find out more about our work um you can head to theblackcurriculum.com and we are on all social media including instagram so that's the black curriculum um twitter is curriculum black um facebook is the black curriculum um tiktok is the black curriculum and what we what you can expect from us over the next couple of months, we are um, in the UK kind of thinking about policy. So you can really expect to hear us more in the policy realm when it comes to parliamentary debates, when we're thinking about actual policy changes, implementation on the ground, we'll be leading that um, front and center. And then going into um, 2023, um, you will definitely be seeing us more um, partnering up with organizations across Europe. And after that, 2025, our hope is to become international, but one step at a time. So, um, you know, stay updated and yeah, keep supporting TBH 365, which is our campaign, Teach Black History 365. You heard it, Teach Black History 365, the Black curriculum, Lavinia Stennett, Dominic and Broke. Thanks for being here.